Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Khalees Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. We are inching ever closer to the 14th annual march for the Food Bank, November 20th and 21st. 43 miles from Springfield to Greenfield, and today we'll have no shortage of ways for you to learn about how hunger impacts our region along those miles and what you can do about it. There may or may not even be a way to visit a couple of Northampton wine shops and literally drink wine to fight hunger. We'll hear more during our Wine Thunderdome at State Street, and we'll hear about the largest potato farm in Massachusetts and how their tubular tubers are total spuds when it comes to supporting the Food Bank of Western Mass. There's, our guest is smiling, and I'm just Aren't you glad I didn't make head. you make that joke, Khalees? I... I had originally thought about it, but then... Uh... <laughs> And it's Live Music Friday, but even Live Music Friday is an opportunity to learn about ways to fight hunger as we welcome the Forest Avenue String Band, who are performing a benefit for the Stone Soup Cafe in Greenfield, the only place on the weekend for free hot meals for people who need it in the city. We'll also talk with Stone Soup's executive director and executive chef, Kirsten Levitt. But first... Lev Ben Ezra, the executive director of the Amherst Survival Center, one of the many food pantries and meal sites that we visit on the march for the food bank. I love joining the Amherst Survival Center in January of 2019, finding that this is the perfect place to combine her passion for social justice, her commitment to making resources to meet basic needs accessible for all, and her skill bringing people together to accomplish big goals. Thanks for joining us in studio this time. I know. Thanks so much for having me. We it's had great a chance to be here. To talk to you in March about your Empty Bowls program, but now we just get to talk to you about all the general things that the Amherst Survival Center does, which is really cool. And we just came off of the cusp of a fundraiser you did that was also walking based, the Hike for Hunger. Tell us about about that and the success of that event. It was fabulous. Uh, this was our fourth annual Hike for Hunger, and throughout the month of October, we had more than 90 hikers who hit the trails at their own pace and all throughout the month, all around the Western Mass and the state and elsewhere, and then reached out to their friends and family for support to uh, bring resources into the food and nutrition programs at the Amherst Survival Center. And it was amazing. Uh, it is certainly at a slightly different scale than the Food Banks March, um, <laughs> but we were uh, very, very excited. Uh, the event uh, raised more than $37,000, and that will all go directly to our food programs. Not to, not to take away from your total, but you've been here a total of like two minutes, and you're already scoring with the homonym scale for the hike going up. Oh, yeah. There we is. go. I like that. Good job. Wordplay. Yes. We, we reached our summit. Ah. <laughs> the um, Amherst Survival Center is right sort of on the cusp of the perimeter of, of UMass Amherst. And I think a lot of people think about, oh, Amherst is such a, an affluent, wealthy community. How could hunger ever exist in a place like that? But the more you learn about hunger, you realize it is in every community. Tell us about the community that the Amherst Survival Center is working with. Yeah, so the Amherst Survival Center really, first and foremost, is a community center where people are welcome to come and connect and share resources and where we have a number of different programs that can help people reach their base, meet their basic needs. And that includes free meals four days a week, free groceries. Uh, we have a free walk-in medical clinic. We have a resource center so that staff and volunteers from other organizations are available to do things like help folks enroll in fuel assistance or or sign up for SNAP benefits or access Salvation Army vouchers for clothing and housewares and those kinds of things. And then we also have 
community activities and all of this is made possible through a really incredible community effort of involving more than 200 volunteers every week and our team of staff and community supporters and donors that uh, bring food and uh, financial contributions and everything in between. So it is a, a really incredible community effort. And when we think about the specific community of Amherst and who we're serving, you're absolutely right that a lot of folks think that it, we wouldn't have the levels of food insecurity that we have in Amherst. Um, but in fact, Amherst is a community where there absolutely is very significant wealth and there is also really significant poverty. And the uh, poverty rates and not surprisingly, the food insecurity rates are actually significantly higher in Amherst than in the county, Hampshire County as a whole. But as you were saying, Food insecurity and economic poverty is something that exists in all of our communities. And at the Amherst Survival Center, we serve people from and we serve people from everywhere um, in our food pantry, which is the only program that has any geographic restriction, serves folks from 13 towns. So we're really bringing folks in um, who need need help to to make ends meet. I think that those wealth disparities often tend to hide how important like centers like this and how important like how saturated those insecurity issues really are in communities like that. Not to mention like UMass being there and there being an ongoing adjunct crisis. But that's another issue altogether. But I think it's it's tied in there. You mentioned a free walk in health clinic which is kind of amazing. How did you get that started and identify that as a really important part of this uh, ongoing battle against hunger? Yeah. So the I had nothing to do with getting it started. Um, it <laughs> you was, as it was, organization. Yes. Uh, it was started uh, actually prior to the Amherst Survival Center even being in the building that we're in currently. The Amherst Survival Center had a, was in a small basement space. And my understanding is that the clinic was actually started and uh, was in the then executive director's office. Uh, and her desk was a <laughs> table that or a board that was then put over the exam table. Uh, and, was this when Mindy Dom was the executive director? No, okay, this was that? Uh, Cheryl Zoll. Okay, yeah. right, yes. <laughs> um, but the health center and healthcare in Massachusetts has come a really long way in the 15 years since the health clinic at the Amherst Survival Center has been around. And still, there is such a critical gap in access. Even though we have one of the highest insured rates in the country, there are still people who both aren't insured. And also there are so many people who do not, are not connected to a medical home, or even if they have insurance, can't afford the co-pays or can't get to the appointment or can't you know, make all these various connections that then are really required. And so having this kind of free walk-in access really means that people have access to care for everything from wound care to getting follow up if they are diabetic and need to check their sugars or want to talk about their current medication regimen to folks who are really needing referrals for much more advanced specialist care or lab work or other things. So it's a really critical, critical need that gets met. 
We're speaking with Lev Ben-Ezra, who is the executive director of the Amherst Survival Center. And it's, you know, it is a survival center in multifaceted ways, as we're learning about right now. But it is a, a food pantry and, and a meal site. And the March for the Food Bank is coming up. You've done your own incredible fundraiser that raised over $37,000 for the specific needs of the Amherst Survival Center, which is one of about 175 partner agencies that work with the Food Bank. But what is your relationship as the Survival Center with the Food Bank of Western Mass? So at the core of who we are and what we do is our food and nutrition programs. And we're on track at this point in 2023 to provide 1.4 million meals prepared in groceries to between 9,500 and 10,000 people. So we're wow. providing a, a really enormous uh, food resource and improving the food security of our community. and. We could not do that without our partnership with the food bank. So the way that I always describe our relationship is is one of true partnership, that the food bank brings incredible food resources into the community, both through their connections and ability to garner USDA and BFAP foods, which are the state and federal sources of government-funded food for programs like ours, and also all of the donations that they broker with retail establishments and um, and then food that they purchase and are able to do so in, in significant bulk that we receive um, for free and are able to distribute that. And then we, like all of the other member 170-whatever member organizations or partner organizations that you're referring to, really are that last mile of getting the food to the community, getting the food to people who need it. So this last year, the Food Bank uh, provided more than $1.5 million worth of food to the Amherst Survival Center that we were able to access. It amounted for more than half of the food that we distribute overall, and, and about two-thirds of the food that goes through our food pantry comes from the food bank. So we really... Uh, we. We would not be able to do what we're doing. There's no way to make up that gap. We would not be able uh, to, to do the work that we do without our partnership with the food bank. It's interesting that you mentioned that you're going to try, that you've given out 1.5 million meals over the last year. If we raise the amount of money we're aiming for on the march for the food bank, that is the amount of meals that would be covered. So it's uh, you could think of it if you wanted to participate. You could provide all the meals <laughs> through the Amherst Survival Center <laughs> by supporting the march for the food bank. Uh, Lev Ben-Ezra, uh, it's always a, a fun part for me to uh, see you when we're on that march because I know that I'm about halfway done with the last day, <laughs> <laughs> amongst other things. But it's always a wonderful pit stop, and it's always a great community. And there are people that are there uh, getting ready for what you know their Thanksgivings or whatever they'll be celebrating that particular uh, day when we're there on the Tuesday, the 21st. Uh, last – what – What's the great need that Amherst Survival Center has right now that you uh, could use support for from our community? I think the key piece that I want the community to be aware of is that the need is growing. I think that a lot of folks were really aware of rising food insecurity throughout the pandemic. And the reality, the really sad reality, is that we are actually seeing now about 40% more people every month than we saw in the highest surges, the busiest months that we saw at any time in 2021 or 2022. It is more than that and higher. So 
So as as folks in the community are are thinking about this issue and wanting to help, I uh, really invite support for the Amherst Survival Center, for the food bank, for other partner organizations. We need volunteers. We need financial donations. We need donations of food. Um, and we also want folks to know that if free meals or free food, would free groceries would be helpful for your family, that we are here. So we would love to meet you, AmherstSurvival.org. And you can meet us on the road there in real time if you follow along on the March for the Food Bank. Lev Ben-Ezra, the Executive Director of the Amherst Survival Center, thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. It's been great to talk to you. Yay. Later in the show, Live Music Friday with the Forest Avenue String Band, who are doing a benefit for another organization fighting hunger, Stone Soup Cafe in Greenfield. And we'll find out how you can drink wine and fight hunger during our Wine Thunderdome at State Street in Northampton. Up next, how a potato farm was taken by eminent domain by the city of Northampton, but this farm is no speck when it comes uh, to using their spuds for good. My gosh. We're listening to the fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. The fabulous 413 podcast is funded by Northeast Solar, homegrown in Hatfield, Massachusetts, and providing energy savings for their customers for over 10 years. Learn more at northeast-solar.com. What's your favorite way to have your potatoes? Hmm, I do love mashed potatoes. Time for a Local Hero Spotlight with Phil Corman from CISA, the Local Hero folks, and Diane Swazlowski, a legendary name in the area, Mullins. Swazlowski, for people that live in this part of the world, equals potatoes, I think, in a lot of people's minds, including mine. Yep. First question for you, Diane, last week was Halloween, and I was seeing all this stuff trending about people giving out potatoes as an option instead of candy on Halloween. Even a friend's house who I went to in Montague Center had potatoes as an option instead of candy. Is this something that you as a potato farming family are seeing arise? Well, I did see that as well. A little <laughs> too late, unfortunately, and did give out candy. But from what I understand, kids are choosing the potato over candy when there's an option. I don't know. At Easter time, you know, people were coloring potatoes instead of eggs. <laughs> and then one other interesting thing, the Northampton High School field hockey team had a little uh, Halloween party at practice, and they painted small pumpkins and potatoes. That's fun. That, that is fun. This versatile world of potatoes. And they're adorable, actually, some <laughs> of the creations. For those who aren't familiar with Swazlowski and your family, tell us about the history and, and where your farm is and all that. Well, our farm is based in Hatfield now. It was originally Northampton, Massachusetts. Mm. Um, my great-grandfather, J.R. Swazlowski, immigrated from Poland and started the farm, incorporated it in 1910. I'm fourth generation, and there's fifth generation working still. It originally started in Northampton. I used to work there when it was in Northampton. Uh, I used to go to the market with my father, the Springfield Produce Market, hang bags on a machine in an old packing shed there. And then in, in the early 1970s, the... Um, city of Northampton took the farm by eminent domain. It's where the industrial park is now and where right. the Coca-Cola plant is. Um, I think they're moving, but anyway, and then moved to Hatfield, found a location in Hatfield, and we've been there ever since. What was that like for the family to lose the farm by a eminent domain to the city of Northampton? It was very difficult. In fact, my grandfather didn't survive the move. He passed away shortly before we actually moved, but it was sad. You know, a lot of memories there. Mm. It was hard, but it was actually, the Sosalskis are very tough people and <laughs> can 
take the incoming. And so moved to Hatfield. And actually, there was a lot of growth that happened after that period. Now you're going to take Coca-Cola back by eminent domain since they're going to skip town anyway. We're going to pull out Coca-Cola and put in potatoes. I want a photo and at the bottom the caption just says booyah. Whenever we go out and we see this piece of equipment, it looks like kind of the most fun, terrifying thing. But do you get to drive the potato tractors? No, I, I'm I so when I was sorry. a kid, I've gone, I, I don't drive them. I, I have been on them, the harvesters and inside the, the sprayers. I think that's probably the one that you think is really weird that's up really high. Yeah, they're like two stories high. Yeah. You could drive a car easily yeah. right underneath them. The tires are as tall as, as yeah. we are. Yeah. So, Diane, I, I'm always fascinated by families that can actually work and live together because my family's done pretty well, but we're all sort of control freaks and like you can't have two of us in the same place working. So I'm kind of curious, like, so your your father's generation, there were five brothers. Four brothers. Four yeah. brothers. And then and there's sisters. many, many daughters involved in this current generation. Can you just share a little bit, like, how does a family really run a business like this and make it work? Yeah. Well, I think that with, with my father and his brothers, they, they each had their own lane. You know, each one had their own specialty. My father was more... Well, he was probably more like the businessman. He, you know, really started the the direct selling to customers and, you know, purchased more land and kind of took the initiative to expand. And then my Uncle Chet was like a really brilliant mechanic, farmer, operator of the equipment. John was farming. He did the integrated pest management, spraying stuff. And Stanley had his specialty. He drove truck and did seed cutting and so forth. So they all had their own thing. And that's really how it is now as well. We mm. each have our own kind of specialty. My sister Shelley's like the real estate person and operations gal. And Melanie, who was the former teacher, is in the office keeping everything straight and <laughs> making sure the orders are precise. And my background was in communications, believe it or not. And um, so that's why I came into it to help with marketing and branding and stuff like that initially. And then it kind of grew into business development and sales. And now I'm doing all kinds of special projects and more operations and stuff too. Well, the marketing has been pretty good. If I said that the when I hear the name Swislowski, I think potatoes. And that is your bread and butter, or I guess potato and butter. We're speaking with <laughs> just potatoes, no butter. Oh, I love butter. Yeah, come on, <laughs> baked potato with butter and salt yeah, and pepper. Butter. Come on, that's about the best thing there is. Diane Swazlowski Mullins, who is the sales marketing public relations lead for Swazlowski Potato Farm. How big is the farm, and is it all potatoes? Yeah, we we do just grow potatoes. We have. Well, it varies because we lease land as well, mm -hmm. and we swap, and we have partnerships with other growers who grow for us under our umbrella. We are one of the largest farms in the state. We also have partners, growers that we contract with on the eastern shore of Virginia, so their crops are ready like a month before ours. Mm -hmm. So it is big. I mean, we, we have around 2,000 acres of our own, but then with all the others you know, coming into the mix it's a lot under production. Those other farms that you have contracts with that will allow you to have potatoes in a more year-round fashion so there, there isn't really a lull in any of your production time. Even with the partnerships and the uh, contracts with other growers, we still have gaps. And depending on the year, mm -hmm. you know, the crop isn't always bountiful enough to store. And so there is a period of time where we do bring potatoes in from other farms across the country. And this year is going to be one of those years where we're not going to have Due to the flooding? Yeah. yeah. We had a you know, really rough year. Tell us a little bit more specifically about how the flooding impacted Swazlowski's. Well, greatly. 
last year was a really good year. We had excellent quality, and the weather was, even though it was dry, it was favorable. We'd, we would actually prefer dry. This year, when, you know, that July 10th event happened, we were okay until then. And then, you know, it was the flood where we lost 350 to 400 acres under river water, and then, wow. then it continued to rain. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there was... Continues to and rain. And it continues to continues rain. Continues to rain. Which is why we're still not finished harvesting. We're finishing this week. So yes, we lost a lot of our crop this year. We're speaking with Diane Swazlowski-Mullins, who works with Swazlowski Potato Farm in Hatfield. It is the largest potato farm in Massachusetts, according to Phil Corman and CISA, the local hero folks. I'm really curious about the decision, obviously, maybe a couple of decades ago to move the business in a way vertically to integrate it to become a potato packing supplier. So we had invested in packing equipment that was, you know, for our own personal use. And, you know, it was really um, my father drove this aspect of the growth. We had the ability to pack potatoes and we had a customer a very loyal customer base and we're located geographically strategically very close to a very densely populated portion of the country in the northeast you know potatoes come from Maine Canada Idaho mm-hmm. so we decided to try that and 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 we've been doing that so we'll bring them in from Maine after you know our season's done or Prince Edward Island or in the Wisconsin area from North Dakota, and we bring them in and we pack them. It's harder to make money doing that. Um, we do it to keep our employees uh, employed throughout the year and, you know, to keep our, our customers supplied. We're trying to make it more profitable, but it's not easy. <laughs> we have a lot of people that depend on us for employment, and not just the people working in the packing house, but the truck drivers, the vendors who sell us the packaging and the, the fuel and the, you know, there's all kinds of things that are coming into our plant. And who brought the solar panels to the operation? Yeah, that was, well, Shelly was the spearheaded that back in like around 2010, I believe. We have the panels on all of our buildings and we have a solar farm in Waitley. We had some land that wasn't like the best for, for growing. So we have a little solar farm over there that helps out. Yeah. Does subcontracting some of those other farms also allow you to bring in more types of potatoes that people ask for? There's four varieties, basic varieties that we grow white, like the round white, russet, yellow or gold potato, and reds. But it's interesting, the consumption of white potatoes has decreased, you know, mm-hmm. it used to be the biggest, it's just demographics, it's aging out of the older population, like Eastern European population mm. in the area that love their white potatoes. And gold now is the big mover. Is there anything nutritionally different between the different types of potatoes that you mentioned? No, there's not. But I think that people tend to leave the skins on, like the reds and the golds. Yeah. And, you know, that gives you, you know, it's more fiber. But I think it's really driven from food service, you know, restaurants. I think that's where it starts, the trends, and then people go home and, you know, they have their Yukon gold mashed potatoes, and all of a sudden they're making Yukon gold mashed potatoes instead of white mashed potatoes. But also, don't make Yukon gold mashed potatoes, y'all. Like, don't use waxy potatoes for mash. Use russets. I had some russet <laughs> potato chips over the weekend. We're talking potatoes with Diane Swazlowski-Mullins. They're great for frying. They're great for fries. Oh, yeah. But well, not for mashing. <laughs> let's talk about that, because I, I do know a couple restaurants in the area that swear by Swazlowski for their french fries. What are some of the restaurants that you work with locally? Well, Fishtails and Hatfield has in the past, and I think Highbrow and Northampton. 
think Dozen. local might. Local, oh. local is the one I was thinking of, yeah. that they were they local make great fries yes. and um, local oh, burger swears by their Swazowskis. Yes, they do. And then I um, also the um, Philo's. Philo's. That was the number two. Philo's. And I love Philo's. both of their Philo's. fries. Philo's. They, they use a lot of our potatoes. <laughs> and oh, yeah. Florence Pizza. Yeah, it's so, the same ownership. So when we're talking to restaurants and they're saying, well, we want to start thinking about sourcing local. Or we don't know how we're going to get some of it. We usually say, well, there's a couple of easy things to start with. <laughs> And Swaz Potatoes is yeah. always right there. It's like, yeah. it's available, it's grown here, price point works well, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Since farms do donate food and also sell to the food bank. And since the March for the Food Bank is coming up in less than two weeks. And we sponsor that. Oh, thanks. Year. And we are, we are doing it again this year, by the way. Excellent. Um, we scaled back a little bit just because of the circumstances. Yeah, but rough we are. year. People are going to have to bring their own potatoes. <laughs> I know, on the right? Mark. And paint them. But we always, we've always support. You know, we have a very strong relationship with the Food Bank, Western Massachusetts, Greater Boston Food Bank, and really appreciate the partnership. And in the past, we've donated a lot. This year, not as much. We will continue to do that. It's important to us. Diane Swazlowski Mullins from Swazlowski Potato Farm. Moving from Northampton via eminent domain to Hatfield, but really making... Also, like, the, the circumstances of eminent domain happening in, like, the 70s, people don't necessarily think of that as a 20th century thing. I know, right? Like, yeah, it wasn't like they were putting a railroad in there. They were putting Coca-Cola in there. Yeah, right? An industrial plant. But mm. you've really continued the legacy of this fifth-generation farm and being an active member of the community, donating to the food bank, making sure our neighbors have enough to eat. Thank you for doing all that. And to Phil Corman from CESA, the local hero folks. Phil, who uh, is right by the side of the cart for a large swath of the uh, March for the Food Bank. A large swath. A large swath of the March for the Food Bank. Swaz is the the nickname for Swazlowski. You can find out about all of our local heroes and about their impact on fighting hunger by going to buylocalfood.org. Later in the show, Live Music Friday with the Forest Avenue String Band, who are doing a benefit for Stone Soup Cafe in Greenfield. We'll also talk with Stone Soup's director, Kirsten Levitt. But first, Kay Surratt. Sarah Shiraz below the equator, at least. <laughs> and more homonyms with the Wine Thunderdome at State Street in Northampton. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. In public radio, we are not allowed to give a direct call to action for people to go and do anything other than, strangely, to donate to public radio. Give us money! We can do that whenever we want. Oh, yeah. But if we were to say, hypothetically, suggest that you could go to two particular stores in Northampton and Florence, respectively, and spend, a, let's say, $100 that would come with a bag that had all sorts of goodies in it, including wine and other alcoholic beverages and snacks and gift certificates and things like that, but that 100% of that $100 would hypothetically go to, say, the food bank of western massachusetts just off the cuff we couldn't say go to state street in northampton or cooper's in florence and get these bags that but would if support you were the- hypothetically walking by on the street and you were like what are those green bags on inside of state street and cooper's you could hypothetically walk in and be like excuse me well anybody who's what? not in public radio can do that whenever oh okay i see but I'm, we oh, yeah, oh i see we and now was, you when you're with us yes. can't also oh, say okay. that on public radio oh i see it's just interesting i think yeah, odd set of rules thing. i yeah. imagine somebody doing something like that i know it's yeah Some 
It seems like such a nice idea. Yeah. Bunch of Wouldn't it be great? Bunch of do-gooders raising money for, you know, a thing that people need. You too could make this dream come true. Yeah, wouldn't it be cool if <laughs> you mean, could I exchange don't... money that would go to make food happen for people who need it and get booze in return? That actually is a really great idea. What could we possibly do to make that happen? You know, I don't know. I, I haven't the slightest idea. I usually just spend money and just get booze. Imagine if you <laughs> drop $100, get a bunch of things you wanted to have, and feed 40 families. Imagine. But that is not why we're here. No, no one wants to drink wine today. <laughs> In the wine bunker, deep below State Street Fruit Store, Deli Wines and Spirits with the Wine Sun and the Yankee Sippa. And what are we going to drink in the Wine Thunderdome today, Wine Sun? Syrah. Que Syrah, Syrah. Que Syrah, Syrah. Or Shiraz. 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 Australians call it Shiraz. Yes, they you do. You say it with a little Boston accent and it sounds like you're cursing someone out. Sounds like your Aunt Shiraz. Got a nice Shiraz for you. Sure as the sun will shine. Oh no. Oh no. One Syrah, one Shiraz. Okay. Same great. Two different countries, two really great examples. This is going to be a tough decision. It always is. This is so the Syrah we're having is a Cose Hermitage, which is Northern Rhone. There are five great Northern Rhone appellations. They all can only do Syrah. With some of them can do a little bit of um, Marsan and Roussillon. Roussillon, yes, of course. So yeah. there's Hermitage, Cose Hermitage, which is the one that we're having, Cornas, Saint Joseph, and Cote Roti. Hermitage is this literally one hill on the Rhone surrounding this tiny town. And it's the top of this hill. It's about 130 hectares. So it is usually very expensive. It is considered one of the, the best expression of Syrah in the world. People in Australia might contest that. And then Crozet Hermitage is the surrounding hills, or like the sort of crescent-shaped hills around that. And then the Torbrek, I'll let him discuss. This is so the you know, that, that new world, I don't know. This is the Australian one. It is. Australian it... for beer, mate. No! Foster's Australian for beer. The Torbrek, and this particular cuvee has always been known as the Woodcutter's Shiraz, uh, is from the Barossa Valley, and Barossa Valley is sort of the premier place in Australia and southeastern Australia more specifically to grow Shiraz and known for big full-bodied jammy style wines and we are going to get all of that here okay so this is going to be a real stylistic thing like oh, I could probably yeah. tell you now which one I'm going to like yeah. better because yeah. of what I know of my own palate however I'm open to everything I'm open to everything I'm more open than he is <laughs> oh I'm please not, yeah I'm not open at all, so let's pour. Also got some snacks to have with it. What are we having? I, we didn't have any French sausage, so I got some nice uh, soppressat and some smoked gouda, which are classic cheese pairings. I think by the sort of rule of thumb that we're going to start dry and end a little bit sweeter. So we're going to start with the Crozet Hermitage, the Paul Jaboulet. It's Moulin Noir. It just means black mule. Oh. It's not just a clever uh, yeah. translation. <laughs> it means black and And then, I mean, but if you know anything about Syrah, when you pour this, it is a black skin grape. It is very dark. But also, if you look at it, it has a beautiful sort of ruby rim. Speaking of ruby, hypothetically, <gasps> Hypothetic Ruby Wines was really involved in hypothetically stocking said bags nice. and wanted to maybe donate all these things that could hypothetically encourage people to support the Food Bank of Western Mass. Mm, blackberry, pepper. Pepper is a big one yeah, for me with Syrah. Yep, and a little, it's a little um, brambly, green olive. A little tobacco, a little tar. So the beauty of the Northern Rhone, the Mistral winds come down the Rhone from, I believe, Switzerland. And it keeps the, the one tiny hilltop, like we're talking like 100, 130 hectares. So there are estates in Bordeaux that are bigger than the entire appellation of Hermitage. If you look at it, it looks like a dome. If you buy a Crows Hermitage and you think you're getting a Hermitage, you're not. They're totally different expressions. The Hermitage is big and muscular and jammy, and I hate that word. It's a really, really big wine. This is a much like lighter, leaner, more 
fun uh, version. And, much, there... and actually much less expensive version. <laughs> Technically speaking, the Hermitage is where they find Sir Aglavale when they're looking for him. Khalees Smith's romance. new book, oh! Sir Morian, well, in stores now. Because supposedly it's from, this is one of the oldest appellations in France. It's from the 10th century. And there was a hermit on the top of this tiny mountain um, making wine. If you are a, into wine, it's one of those regions that you should treat yourself and buy yourself a bottle of, of wine. And it's not unreasonable. You know, if someone was hypothetically walking by on a beach and they saw 28 clams lying on the beach. That's, maybe trade those in. You could trade those in yeah. to, at Mr. Flintstone's wine shop. Yeah, but dabba do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I can't give a call to action that way. The structure works really well with the cheese. I love dry things with fat. The white pepper and the hints of piney garrigue. Mm. It is so quintessentially Syrah. Okay, the first Syrah from France, from Cros Hermitage, is from Jaboulet. Is affordable and delicious. Yes, wow. it is. Yeah, sort of affordable. The oh, Moulet Noir. It's also bee approved. Yay. So if the bees drink it and are you know, those French bees, you know how they are snobs. They're yeah. bays there. Yeah, the bays. The only bay in my house is Beyonce. Don't tell and your bay that. I'm, and the one I'm marrying, sorry. Moving from Syrah to Shiraz, which is actually the same grape, just pronounced differently to make wine more confusing yep. for Syrah people. Syrah was brought to Australia in 1883. This is one of the oldest wine regions in Australia, and they have pre-phylloxera vines. So Ooh. some of the oldest grapevines in the world are in Barossa. What was it, the late 1800s? Oh my God, am I not oh, there was sorry. a louse that almost wiped out all viticulture not... in Europe. So these are pre-phylloxera vines. So, so they survived because they were not in yeah. Europe. It's a really important wine area. I am a sucker for some Australian Shiraz. The blackberry is real intense on this one. And if you thought there was tar yeah. notes on the first one, mm -hmm. it's really pronounced here. These wines do smell similar to me, but the fruit on this, and I, again, we're talking warmer climate, is huge, much more huge, less restrained. Doesn't go as well with the Gouda um, as the first one did, right. in my opinion. The Gouda dominates. And... I haven't gone there yet, but it goes really well with the sausage. Yeah, uh, you know so... what? You're right. This yeah. clobbers the Gouda. But it doesn't have as much structure is the other one like right. it's big and it's it's got this really nice minerality to it but it doesn't have like the other one is very straight line so it gets to contain all yeah. that fat from the the gouda and the yeah, smoke the acid is a little bit less so the wine wanders on you it's not it's nonetheless delicious mm. it's just different so australians also known for their um beef and their sheep so and their crocodile and their crocodile so imagine a nice roasted crocodile with a good shiraz and actually, cut it up with a real knife. Hey, that's a real knife. That's not a knife. You God. missed it. Come on. I did. That went right over my head. Yeah. That's a knife. I hate Do I need to make a shrimp on the you Barbie joke you for you? Please yes. no, please no. don't. And also, Speaking I... of Barbie, hypothetically, somebody's <laughs> going to dress up as weird Barbie for the March for the Food Bank, which is happening Wait, in a week and a half. Barbie has a shopping cart. And if Barbie <laughs> wanted to do something really good, she would push a shopping cart a really long time. Maybe not in heels, although she should. Anyway, or Burks. Definitely not. Once again, they are both delicious. Yeah. I, we've all kind of agreed that we all tend towards old world wines. Mm -hmm. uh, no, the three of you, I world. tend to she new world. New world I, I action. I like Spanish wine so much. I do, but in general, I tend to new world. Oh, okay. Fine, Khalees. And there's nothing I, wrong with she's that. Always no. gotta, yeah, she's always going to make a point. I drink the wine from where the Moors were and let just leave that where that was. Yeah. <laughs> it's time to vote. All right, ooh, oh, ooh, I don't want to vote. The oh, Thunderdome. Oh. I genuinely don't know which one to choose. Oh. They do oh, that's such... Fantastic distinctly That's different awesome. things. Such a great long-term love affair with the Torbrek that I'm, I'm going to just go ahead and pick it. I'm going to violate everything in my conscience and what I said at the beginning of this, which is that I think I know which one I'm going to pick. And I am also going to vote for the Australian Torbrek. Torbrek. High five. High five. I 
always choose Old World Wines. And this one actually is probably the most difficult wine Thunderdome we've done. And I am going to stick with Old World Wines. Okay, trader. And More like gross Hermitage. <laughs> In this Fab 413 role reversal, I'm going to stick with you. Like, <gasps> I like New World Wines, but there's something especially about going back where, like, that structure turned into delicacy. And I like when things are a little bit delicate. Oh, the coin is out. This oh, is what happens. Yeah. I sent Nirvani Williams a <laughs> text early on when we got here. I'm like, you might need to be our tiebreaker. <laughs> you may hear Nirvani Williams as a tiebreaker on this segment. Sometime oh, in the that future. That would be so fun. Who's gonna call this? All right. So heads is old world, tails is new world. Do it. Heads. Oh! Down we go. I'm Monty. afraid to say my observation about this coin toss. Why? Because I've yet to lose one. Solid draw. That's a good no, sign. But what it means is that both these wines are fabulous. Yeah. yeah. Both these wines are fabulous, but the winner is Jaboulet. Cross Hermitage, Syrah Shiraz. I love the juxtaposition of old world, new world, because it brings a very natural part of the wine conversation to the table. If you know you're going to be trying several things, it's really fun to sort of climb the ladder and climb back down the ladder and go back again. One opportunity, opening a bunch of bottles and tasting through and tasting it with different foods, Thanksgiving. There is not one oh, perfect yeah. Thanksgiving wine. The best thing you can do is get a bunch of wines, open them all up, mix and match, pair, go all the, over the, the place. It's super fun. wines with Thanksgiving, though, is not pairing it with the bird. It's pairing it with all the sides. Yeah. Ding. Also, the best answer is, what wines do you like? Don't mm -hmm. beat yourself up about it. If you like it, if it goes with turkey, that's, that's the wine that you should have. Yeah. Drink what you like, because it's more about sharing it with the people you love than it is about being right about which wine goes with what. Everybody's palate is special. And in theory, it could be more of like less of a palate thing and more of a spiritual emotional thing where you're like, this wine is here because I made a contribution at a market in Northampton or Florence where 100% of that $100 went to the Food Bank of Western Massachusetts. Where which other people can now celebrate Thanksgiving. Right, and then that provides 300 meals and it's may win me an opportunity to pick an hour's worth of music on WRSI 93.9 The River with Morning Steve. Yeah, the golden Morning ticket. The golden hypothetically, there's a golden Hi yeah, ticket in one of these hypothetical bags that there are only a hundred of that are at these two places. <laughs> and it might just be the perfect Thanksgiving yeah. wine that's in there too. I mean, really the best wine for Thanksgiving is the one that lets you deal with your relatives. That's sometimes called vodka bourbon. Up next, it's Live Music Friday with the Forest Avenue String Band, who are doing a benefit for Stone Soup Cafe in Greenfield, along with Stone Soup's director, Kirsten Levitt. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. I'm Monty Belmonte. And I'm Khalees Smith. This Sunday, November 12th at 3 p.m. at the All Souls Church in Greenfield, the Forest Avenue String Band will play a benefit concert for the Stone Soup Cafe. The Forest Avenue String Band joins us in the studio for Live Music Friday, as does the executive director and executive chef of the Stone Soup Cafe, Kirsten Levitt. But first, some music. Take it away, Forest Avenue String Band.
the Forest Avenue String Band, featuring Eveline McDougall on fiddle and accordion, Desi Lowett on fiddle, Dan Frank on mandolin, and a hand-cranked hurdy-gurdy. Am I getting that wrong, Eveline? Well, he's not playing mandolin right this second, but yes, he's playing the hurdy-gurdy. Yeah, so that's what... it because he remembers that you liked it. I love (laughs) hurdy-gurdy. I saw you on the streets of Northampton playing a hurdy-gurdy, and we did an impromptu interview on the street because there's that Donovan song, Hurdy-Gurdy Man, of course. Can you crank that for just one second again? This is like a hand crank... It's a string instrument, but you play it with a crank. It's really cool and weird and amazing. Yeah. Oh, as far as I know, all hurdy-gurdies are hand-cranked. Yeah, I'm pretty sure, yeah. Yeah. Maybe there's an auto hurdy-gurdy at some point, but... And we also have in the studio with us today John Clark on the electric bass because our guitar player Andy Van Ash broke his wrist. Which is a shame. However, John John Clark is one of the most esteemed jazz French hornists in the world. In the world of all time. (laughs) Yeah, played with everybody from Miles Davis and Charles Mingus to LL Cool J. (laughs) And uh, when Avery Sharp was here getting ready for his show tonight... I was like, do you know John Clark? And he was like, we've gone on tour together. So he snuck up behind you while you were playing the bass. And then you had to play bass in front of one of the greatest jazz bass players of all time. So. Yeah. John and Avery are on the road with McCoy Tyner for a long time. So Yeah, that's yeah. amazing. So, And this Sunday at 3 at All Souls Church in Greenfield, the Forest Avenue String Band will be performing. Will Will John be there at that tour? John will be there, yes. Okay. And we have an opening act, which is the fabulous... Fiery Hope, Hope Chorus. Formerly known as the Amandla Chorus. Nice. Oh, and it's all to benefit the Stone Soup Cafe in Greenfield. And joining us is not only the executive director, but also executive chef. In your chef token, everything today, because this is your huge prep day, because yeah. Saturday is the big day for Stone Soup Cafe. Tell us, for if people don't know, what Stone Soup Cafe's mission sure. and vision is. Absolutely. So thank you so much for having me today. Yeah. Well, thank and you thank for coming. you. To the Forest Avenue String Band, I am so grateful for people who really want to support Stone Soup Cafe and share beautiful music and make our lives more enriched. So the Stone Soup Cafe mission is to create a community space where people, all people, come together to share nourishment, connection, and learning for body, mind, and spirit. And the Stone Soup Cafe has been in operation for just uh, about 12 years. And um, we serve a pay-what-you-can meal every Saturday from noon until 1.30. And ever since the pandemic, we've uh, grown and grown and grown. And so there is no indoor dining. It's curbside pickup or delivery only. Um, But every single week, it's a celebration meal. So this weekend, we're doing Indian food to celebrate Diwali tomorrow and uh, yes there's quite a big prep crew back in Greenfield <laughs> who are who are manning the ship without me um, so I can be here with you and thank you so much where did the vision for this community meal that welcomes everybody whether they need the idea of being of, of food in an emergency way or not come from right so um, Bernie Glassman who was an American Zen master and has passed away for several years now. And his student, Jeff Bridges, yes, that guy. Yes, the dude. The dude. conceived of a cafe where all people would come together to eat and have choice and be served with dignity, not just love. Because in Bernie's um, Buddhist practices of openness, bearing witness, and then moving into loving action, uh, many of uh, his students and himself had been on street retreats where they had partaken 
of uh, what is traditionally called a soup kitchen. And there was lots of love, but no dignity. And um, he conceived this idea of creating tables where everyone sat together, where there were no blurred lines, and where people who could support the mission would, and who and people who couldn't support the mission would be able to eat, and that we would be staffed by volunteers. And I can tell you that last year we were just about 200 meals shy of 30,000 meals. Yes, that's one meal a week, but 30,000 meals in a year. Mm-hmm. Um, we had we went from a staff of five to a staff of 15, but we still have another 70 plus volunteers between delivery drivers and food prep and distribution people on the curb and our free store program, which is a community pantry program that anybody can come and partake of. Um, which is held outdoors. Um, It's a huge operation now. So it it used to be like 25-ish people a week to serve (laughs) about 100 people a week, and now it's more like 100 people a week to serve (laughs) 600 meals. Uh, Part of your program you haven't mentioned is the culinary. You have a school attached. Yeah, so uh, two years ago we were really blessed to get a State of Massachusetts Community Empowerment and Reinvestment Program grant. And this dream that I had for many years came into being. And so we are, uh, we've, we've had two cohorts, one each year, one in 22 and one this year in 23. Each of them have graduated five students who have gone out and now are working in the food industry in some capacity. Um, and we are going to have a third cohort in 2024. We, we just received the word that we have the Urban Agenda Grant from the state of Massachusetts, as well as we have a partnership workforce development grant through the Franklin County Sheriff's Office. And so people who are leaving the carceral system um, who want to go into the food industry will have this 12-week course. And we were very lucky to have funding Um, last year and this year that includes a stipend. So students who are selected to participate will be paid to come to school um, for the 12 weeks as well as earn certificates. And it's a great program. And you are the executive chef. So you're a great person to be at the helm of that to teach people who will go on into the restaurant industry. Well, well. I'm the head of school. <laughs> and, um, okay, you're executive I'm the, of everything. I'm, I'm the head of school right now. And we have, we've <laughs> had, um, we have one constant instructor, Brandon Shanty, who is uh, a veteran of many, uh, like 25-plus years of restaurant, high, high-end high restaurant and high-volume restaurant. And last year, we were really blessed to have Amy Francis, who was the um, owner of the Belly of the Beast Eatery in Northampton. And, and Amy's gone on to do other things in the food industry. And so now we're about to post for a new chef instructor. Okay, so if you're listening, we can't tell you to sign up for it, but know that that exists. <laughs> It'll happen soon. Kirsten Levitt, executive chef, executive director, and head of school at Stone Soup Cafe. (laughs) A benefit for Stone Soup is happening this weekend at All Souls Church in Greenfield at 3 p.m. on Sunday, featuring the Forest Avenue String Band. I'll just tell you briefly that next week on the show, we're going to be talking more about hunger and how it affects our area. We're going to be diving down into the policy issues surrounding hunger and nutrition. We're going to talk about hunger and its effects in the city we are in right now, Springfield specifically. Uh, do you want to thank anybody before we let them take it away for the end of the show there, Khalees? No, thanks to the the whole team for making this whole tiring work week happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we had election night. It's been a long week. It's but been a long week. Once again, thank you to Dan Frank, Desi Lowett, Eveline McDougal, and John Clark, who are making up the Forest Avenue String Band. Thanks for listening to the Fabulous 413, and we say farewell with their beautiful music. Yay! Mandolin now, no hurdy-gurdy.
Hey, I don't know it's Phil. Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah so I think they're just going to be playing. They got the live band in right now. I think they're really just going to be playing until 1530. So you'll just be hearing music and I'll fade them down and put John in from our wonderful string band playing Sunday at All Souls for Stone Soup. And this is, speaking of keeping it local, this is by Keith Murphy of Brow Bread, Hopper Buster Dog. 